Good morning. Welcome to Mosaic Community Church. I'm Reverend Angel Halstead. I'm the senior pastor of, of our congregation. It's great that you are here with us. We want you to relax and enjoy worship as we just share and worship of, of God and God's truth together. We are a community of people, a diverse community of people who love God and who believe that God wants to use us to make um, our community better. We believe that, uh, that God wants to affirm us as God's people, that God wants to use us, that God enjoys us, that God made us good, and that God wants us to see the goodness that he's placed in each and every one of us, the good that God has placed in creation, so we can enjoy it together and that we can continue to do the work that God has called us to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to make something beautiful out of the wonderful resources God has given us. And so we in part do that in our fellowship together in our Sunday service. We come together to hear the word of God, to enjoy each other, even in this dimension, uh, virtually. And so we invite you to add your name to the chat and let us know you're here. We invite you to sing out, out loud the words that are sung in our praise songs. We invite you, if you need prayer, to ask for prayer. But mostly, we invite you to be you. You are enough. God sees you. God desires a relationship with you. And we desire a relationship with you as well. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome to Mosaic Community Church. Let's enjoy worship together. Good morning, Mosaic. Welcome to another Sunday where we can be together and uh, praise and glorify our Lord Jesus. Last week, as the prayer team was praying, we had a sense of heaviness, anticipation. As we're coming out of this pandemic, Lord willing, um, a lot is changing quickly. And it also has given some people a chance to sort of pause and, and reflect. And sometimes when you slow down is when things hit you the most. So... Um, we just had a sense of that and we were praying into that. Uh, during my daily devotions, it was interesting. The Holy Spirit works, right, to, to bring all these things together. And uh, so the devotional I use has, had been, has been focusing this week on sort of the final discourse of Jesus in John 14 through 16, where he's sort of saying goodbye to his disciples. Um, and this is from John 16, 12 through 15. I have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and, and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the, the person doing the devotional talks about uh, information overload that um, for most adults, uh, after about 90 minutes, you stop absorbing information. Jesus knew during the Last Supper, this was his last time to meet with his disciples and talk to them about what was going to happen. And he knew everything that was going to happen to them. And during that time, he knew that the Holy Spirit would come and he wanted to prepare them for the Holy Spirit 
and have them be ready and to understand that it's it's a journey, right? We keep growing in Jesus. We never stop. That the Holy Spirit would be with them during the difficult times to come. And we have that same promise that the Holy Spirit is with us. Um, and he, he, because he loves us, he generally get, generously gave us that gift um, so that we can know in a hectic and sometimes uncertain world that Jesus is always here for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to know your ways, to understand your paths. I pray that you would lead us in your truth. God, in this time of uncertainty for some, um, confusion, um, time of healing and, and growth, Lord, so many changes, we just thank you that you are the same, that you are our eternal God, that you are with us, that you love us, and that you will be our, our guide um, through the next days and weeks and months and years, Lord. And we just thank you for that. And I pray you'd bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. First time through, mm-hmm. let's do all the words and emotions for them first, okay? And we'll just say it. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide, okay? And then we'll say that again. And then we'll repeat it, but this time a little faster. And we'll go, hmm, and why, hmm, and why, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and why. Okay, and then the next time it'll be, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and hmm, and then hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a hmm, hmm, flowing, hmm, and hmm, okay, so on. And then the next time we won't even say flowing either. We'll just say hmm, so it'll just be a bunch of hmms, and it gets faster every time. So I'll tell you. And we're going to screw up a bunch. That's okay. It counts for the fun of it. <laughs> it is fun. And hopefully everyone will be, will be giggling by the end because I bet she will be. Okay, so <laughs> we'll start nice and slow with all the words. Ready, Josie? Yes. Okay. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide, little faster. Hmm, and wide, hmm, and wide, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and wide. Hmm, and wide, hmm, and wide, will be flowing, flowing, hmm, and wide, little faster. Hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm. Hmm, and hmm, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and hmm, even faster, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a hmm, hmm, flowing, hmm, 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 good job, Jersey. Hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a hmm, hmm, flowing, hmm, 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 faster, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a hmm, 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 and hmm, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a hmm, 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 we miss everybody so much, all of our Mosaic friends, and we were really happy to make some, make a video, some songs for you guys. I hope you enjoyed them, and we'll see you guys real soon. We love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good morning. Good morning, Mosaic. Good morning, friends of Mosaic. Uh, good morning, random internet people who can hear my voice and don't know where on the page it's coming from and are trying to close it out right now. Uh, it was wonderful to be with so many of you in person a few Sundays ago, and I really look forward to doing that again. 
Um, I don't actually know quite the order of the Sunday service of like how this precisely will flow. So I'm gonna give myself a little bit of an introduction just in case. My name is Jim for those of you that I haven't met or haven't seen in a little while. I moved to Philly in 2008. I have been a part of Mosaic uh, since 2008. And I've been involved in a bunch of ways over the years. I have been a member of the prayer team. I have been a volunteer with the kids and children's ministry. And I am currently a member of our church council, which is the words we use for the board of the church. Again, I am grateful for all of you and for being a part of this community, this growing community and all that it has meant to me and to our family over the years. And I am really looking forward to opportunities to do this in person again uh, soon, especially doing this on video is just terrible. Like I can see every little hair that is like not anyway. So I'm really looking forward to seeing all of you again and cannot wait for it. When Pastor Angel told me a couple months ago that she was gonna do a series on Amos, I was really excited and I couldn't help myself um, and she graciously agreed to let me share one of the sermons. Uh, and so again, I'm really grateful to be with you this morning and to share these words with all of us. Here's where we're headed this morning. In the middle of this sermon, I'm gonna do an actual, what I consider in sort of my experience, a normal, actual sermon, 10, 15 minutes, but um, white evangelical Protestant, we're gonna work sentence by sentence, you know, verse by verse through the scriptures quickly. But what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for all of us? Wrapped around that, on the front and the end, I want to give more of a narrative, my story, um, a layer broader, not what do these words mean for us, but what does it mean for us that someone like Amos had words like this at a time like his, and what does that mean for us as people in the world today? So let's start with a little bit of more, more of my story, a little bit more of maybe an introduction, and where I first encountered Amos. Um, for those of you that I don't know as well, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta. I went to a great high school. I got a great education. I uh, had a really nice suburban childhood. My parents started taking me and my brother to church when we were kids uh, because that's what people did. Maybe they were slightly concerned that my brother and I needed some kind of moral compass for later in life. Um, so off we all went as a family. I got more involved in Jesus things or church things in high school. In high school, it really became my choice. Um, and something that I chose to be engaged in and engaged in on my level, um, to call myself a Christian, to spend time with people doing Christian-y kind of churchy sort of things, etc. After high school, I went to college at a small liberal arts school in, in a small rural town in western Massachusetts. In the town, there were about 2,000 college students, about 2,000 people who lived there, and I don't know, 500 cows. That was about where we lived. Nowhere in any of that time up to that point do I have any memory of encountering the book of Amos? I mean, how many of you have ever heard a pastor preach a series on Amos until this month? So again, kudos to Pastor Angel for taking us to encounter God in a place that um, normally folks tend to avoid. So here I am, a fairly normal suburban kid at a small liberal arts school. When I got there, I joined the Christian Fellowship, got involved, started going to a bunch of their weekly things. I joined some community service things on campus, started getting involved with a couple of particular projects that uh, happened to fit. About the spring of my freshman year, I guess the winter, some folks from the Christian Fellowship invited me on a week-long service trip over spring break. Now, where I went to school had two weeks of spring break, which is awesome, and made this a very simple decision. Two weeks of spring break, one to spend at home with my family, one to spend um, with folks that I had gotten to know doing a service trip. Sounds great, let's do it. So here I am, piling into a few cars, driving all the way across the state of Massachusetts, that's three hours at the most, to Dorchester, a neighborhood in Boston, where we lived for a week. Now, mind you, this was the first time in my life 
that I had ever spent the night in an urban neighborhood. And remember, I had absolutely no expectations for this week-long service trip. In fact, I actually had no idea what we were going to be doing. I just signed up and said we said I would go. And the communication was not great and nobody ever really explained what we'd be doing. So here I am. What we ended up doing was community service in the mornings and studying Amos in the afternoons, or maybe it was the reverse, whichever way it was. We spent half our time studying Amos and half our time working at a bunch of different community service projects, none of which I remember. But here I am, 20 years, two and a half months later, telling you I remember Amos, and Amos changed the trajectory of my life. <laughs> now remember, I had no expectation for that week. Some of you have probably gone on trips like that at big decision points in your life, right? It can be really helpful when you're making a big career decision to step back and have a week of reflection and some kind of, no, not me. I was just there. I had, I literally had spring break to burn and here I was burning it. As naively as you can possibly imagine, I just like wandered right into Amos. And 20 years later, after that spring break trip, the words of Amos just, they rattle around my head and they don't let go. The gift of Amos in my life has been these powerful words that stick so deeply. Encountering Amos was like encountering a stiff spring wind, waking you up. Hey, it's okay to come outside again. The air is clear. Encountering Amos was like a jolt of energy, like static electricity. You take off your sweater and you touch the light step and you get zapped. Amos didn't shape my life in the sense of making one big decision. Amos shaped my life as this energy, this power that has carried with me since then. Sometimes, I find these words in Amos really heavy and thoughtful and hard to carry. And sometimes I find that Amos breathes fire and power for everything that I want to be about in life. These words, they anchored themselves so deeply. We're about to dig into the words themselves. But before we do, one last thing I want to note is the tone of the words we're going to look at this morning. I've already said it was a stiff spring wind or a jolt of energy. Each of those things might catch you a little briskly when they catch you. And I want to make one more connection. To me, these words sound like a rallying cry, like the kinds of things you would hear a speaker say at a protest march. Someone up front who gets the crowd together and puts words to things that you haven't quite named yourself, get you all focused in the same direction. Some of you love those voices. And... Um, and if you hear a stereotype that is often rolled out in a newspaper where someone might say, oh, there was a protest, and then there was this angry, young, presumably black, maybe a woman speaking, you would respond to that and say, drop the stereotype and listen to what that young, presumably black woman is saying. And if you're one of those people, I want to challenge you to hear these words in the book of Amos in the same way this morning. Let's work on dropping the stereotype of an angry, Old Testament, judgment-focused God and let's listen together and see what we find. You know how to listen to strong, justified voices. So let's listen. Now, others of us, I imagine, grew up listening with great respect to all the words of the Bible, even the ones that sound judgmental and trying to figure it out. And maybe others of us are less comfortable with the words of a strong protest leader or the strong words of a protest leader. And if you're one of those people, I want to challenge you this morning as we listen to God's strong words. Let's figure out how to give the same consideration to the strong words that we hear at a protest. So we are going to listen to some strong words. I'm going to do this in two parts. 
On the first part, we're going to start in chapter 3, the 12th verse, through the beginning of chapter 4. You may want to Google that now so that you can follow along as I get in um, word by word here, or verse by verse. Here again, it's chapter 3, the 12th verse, and I'll turn it over to the person who's doing the scripture readings this morning. Hi, Mosaic. I'm Brittany Collier, and I'm going to read a scripture today. The scripture is Amos 3, 12 through 4, 1. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who live in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts. On the day I punish Israel for its transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house as well as the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, says the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. All right, thank you for the reading. I wanna grab a few very vivid details here that may be obscured by our cultural distance from the world in which Amos lived. Why does it say in verse 12, rescued with part of a bed or part of a couch? In verse 15, why does it tear down the winter house and the summer house and the houses of ivory? In verse one of chapter four, who, what, why, where, what is the deal with the cows of Bashan? Trust me, that phrase has stuck with me for years. Um, and then again in verse one, what's wrong with a woman asking her husband to bring her a drink? Sounds lovely. All of these details in Amos's context, which we're removed from and might miss, they shout something. And the thing that they shout is luxury. These are luxury goods in their time. Only the richest people in their time had couches or beds. In our time, verse 12 might say something more like, you'll be rescued with the bumper from your Porsche. Only the richest people in their time had multiple houses for different seasons. In our place, verse 15 might say, I will tear down the shore houses with their granite countertops. The cows of Bashan in their time were known as the most pampered of livestock. Cows that were cared for better, were provided for better, were pampered more than some people, more than people who were experiencing poverty. In our time, are there pets in our world that are provided for better than some people? I think that's maybe what it would reference. So I do want to catch the irony or potentially the judgment, the, the sharpness in these words. All these things are signs of luxury that make you a person who in verse one, quote, oppresses the poor and crushes the needy. And with your next breath, ask someone to bring you a drink. Because again, in their time, only the rich would have folks just floating around the household, drinks galore and nobody working ready to bring you a drink. The words of God to the shepherd Amos tell us that in God's view, my luxurious living is inescapably connected to oppressing the poor. Now we'll turn to the second part, chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. And again, I'll turn it over to the person reading for us this morning. Now I'm going to be reading Amos, chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. 
The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. The time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Through breaches in the wall you shall leave, each one straight ahead, and you shall be flung out into Harmon, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Bring a thank offering of leavened bread and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, says the Lord God. I would expect, again, I want to catch a few vivid details, a few vivid details from each of these, each of these verses. Fish hooks and breaks in the wall is how people are taken into slavery in their time. You would have an army get in a battle. They would lay siege to your city. If they won, they're taking you with fish hooks through the breaks in the wall to enslave you. Bethel and Gilgal in their time in verse four, that's actually not where you're supposed to do your worship. You're supposed to do your worship in Jerusalem. Sacrifices and tithes in verse four sound like very good things, and they are, but they should be done a couple of times a year, not every morning. A thank offering in verse five is supposed to be unleavened. And that's actually really important in the um, culture and the story of the Jewish people, not leavened bread. A free will offering also in verse five is supposed to be private, something you do yourself, not something boasted about or in, different, uh, in a different version, it says published. In some, these acts of worship, which at first glance could sound like all really nice things, they're actually all just wrong. If we knew the details the way that Amos' listeners did, maybe the verses would read something like this. The people who go to church all day long, every Monday. The people who love their neighbor a little bit and themselves a lot. It's those kinds of things that Amos is drawing on here. At best, these people are overdoing it. They're confused. They're not paying attention to the details. More likely, though, this is what we would call performative. They're doing it just to be seen. And at worst, these are people who crush the needy and oppress the poor and are trying to hide those things or their feelings about those things behind a bunch of empty religious activity. So again, I want to catch the irony and the specificity here. This is a people marked by three things. First, luxury. Second, empty religiosity, empty religious expression, and third, oppression. So what do these words mean for us? My first encounter with Amos was a moment of clarity, a fresh spring, a jolt, a fresh spring wind. Two things in particular that jolted me and have stuck with me. These may sound obvious to you, which would be wonderful, um, but for me, they have sparked some significant unlearnings a journey of unlearning that I continue on and uh, continue to try to figure out. First, luxury is not an emblem of success, but rather an emblem of oppression of the poor. I grew up in a place, in a context, where having a vacation home was a sign of your standing. Like you had arrived, you were a success among the successful when your family had a vacation home. I've soaked in years of advertising, the same as many of you probably have, that says that luxury is status. If you get this watch, this phone, this brand name, this logo, everyone will recognize. This misconnection between luxury 
an image, I think happens regardless of how much money you have. So maybe it's not a vacation home, and I think for most of us, it's probably not. Maybe it's having the right sneaker with the right logo on it that says status. What if all these symbols of status are actually symbols of oppression? What if the nice brand thing that I wear or drive or own or wear to work to show that I have arrived and I'm a part of the group actually just shows that I am at the top of an oppressive system? Luxury is not an emblem of success or a sign of success, but rather a sign of oppression of the poor. What does it look like in real life to unlearn this? Well, I want to tell you a friend about some friends of mine, Scott and Rebecca. They are real people. I have not talked to them in a few years. I don't think they'll be listening to this, but if they are, I want you to know that you are a blessing and that I tried to get the details right as much as possible. And I think I got overall at least the themes generally correct. When I met, well, a few years before I met Scott and Rebecca, um, they were like normal white suburban people. Scott worked a good job in finance. They had made it. They had a nice suburban home. I think I heard their home had a pool. Then they started to have an encounter like the one I described when I had an encounter with Amos. And they realized that they had built their life in a direction that was no longer the direction that they wanted. And so they decided to unlearn and to change. And to their immense credit, they did it. They did it. Um, so first they sold their nice suburban house and they moved to a city adjacent house, a nice city adjacent house. Um, in, in Philly, it'd probably be like moving from the main line to a safe, clean neighborhood somewhere in the city, maybe in Society Hill. I don't know. Maybe my block. And then they got involved. They had been involved volunteering. They started volunteering more and more with a neighborhood nonprofit, um, in a particular neighborhood in Hartford. And they spent more and more time in that underserved neighborhood, um, connecting with people, volunteering, being a being a person in the neighborhood. Scott decided then to decrease his work hours and he started to work three days a week so that he could volunteer, so that he could actually lead the board of the neighborhood nonprofit, which he did for years, maybe decades, and may still do, I'm not actually sure. And because he realized that his time was more important than their money. And then they decided they needed to move again. So they bought a house and they, mo they literally moved into the neighborhood. And that's where I met them. When they moved in, they probably threw off the census tract. Like, I think they might have been the only white people who were homeowners, who were college graduates, fully employed in the neighborhood. Um, among a few others, um, maybe they weren't quite the only ones, and, and certainly over time, um, but they were some of the first. And I think the way that they did that really illustrated this unlearning. Time is more important than money. Proximity to what God is doing and where God is working, being a part of it is more important than being able to afford status symbols or have a big house or a pool. It's more important, and this is probably harder, but more important than comfort, than things feeling normal, than doing things the way everyone around you is. These are the kind of decisions that people make when they successfully unlearn. Now, I want to recognize how complicated this is in real life in many small ways. This is way harder than it sounds. I mean, you might have thought that sounded hard. I agree. This is even harder. <laughs> Try, for instance, to buy a pair of pants that is fair and just and not at the top of an oppressive system. Was the labor fairly paid for those pants? Were the materials and the processes done sustainably for the Earth's resources? Is the profit, if there was any, is the profit, the value from those pants shared equitably among everybody who produced it? 
here is how ridiculous this is in America, right? I can go to Walmart and buy cheap pants really easily at a place where I know full well that the labor is not fairly paid and that the conditions of the people who made the pants are probably awful. I can just as easily, although I don't really do this because I'm not that into this, but I could just as easily find some luxury pants, whatever the best brand name jeans are. And I can pay, I don't really know, maybe 10 times the cost of the Walmart pants. And I can have all the same problems. Where can I find pants that are not oppressing someone in their production? What does it say about our country that we can so easily spend so much more on luxury, but it is so hard, even if you wanted to, to spend more on fairly produced goods? We have so much unlearning to do. So much unlearning to do. The second jolt from Amos that I want to focus on and take away is the question around doing a bunch of religious things, not being a sign of healthy spirituality, and certainly not covering up a life of oppression. It can be easy to think that God wants us to do religious things. It can be easy to think that people who do religious things look like good people. We're in a church. People do lots of religious things here. But what is God's view? I want to briefly pull in a a verse from the fifth chapter of Amos, verse 21. This might be the only phrase from Amos that has permeated pop culture, largely courtesy of Martin Luther King, quoting the last part of it. In Amos 5.21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Away with the noise of your songs. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. A bunch of religious activity especially done on our terms, performatively. I hate it. I despise it. It's empty. I say that in a church. It's considered empty. Healthy spirituality is marked by justice rolling on like a river, not by all these activities. In fact, God names and denounces in what we looked at today the empty religious expressions of those who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Excuse me. So what does it look like in real life to unlearn this? Well, I'm not very good at this, um, but I am going to share two moments in my life which I think provide an oversimplified contrast that can maybe be a little bit helpful. First, when I was in high school and had just getting involved myself in Christianity, there were a fair number of people around me who were very concerned with a few specific religious activities, or at least activities that they thought and their context said were supposed to show how religious you were. These were things like, did you listen to the right music? Did you date the right people? Or were you allowed to date at all? Now, I was not deeply involved at that point in my life in evangelical Christianity. I didn't grow up in an evangelical church. My parents weren't a part of this. Some of my friends, maybe more were, were hovering around the edges of what has been called now purity culture. Some of you know a lot more about it, and um, and I'm just barely scratching the surface. And others of you even hearing what I just said think that sounds totally crazy, which it probably is. In any case, this kind of performative religious expression is clearly not what God is asking about here in Amos. Second, by contrast, a little bit later in college and after college, I started to learn more about what is called what spiritual disciplines, which is a fancy term for religious expression, spiritual practices, things you do, spiritual activities. There are tons of them. Good things, things like prayer, things like journaling. These things could easily become the kinds of things, the empty religious activities that Amos talks about here. Um, But some of these things that are maybe less well-known are the kinds of religious activity that help us address 
or uh, stay connected to and work against to unlearn what crushing the needy might look like today. For instance, a pretty standard religious activity that you might not have thought of in quite this way, or maybe you have, would be generosity, the practice of giving. Obviously, individuals giving is not going to solve all of society's problems, but it will help us at least a little bit connect and unlearn and unlearn the connection between our possessions and ourselves. A practice that's been really meaningful to me is a practice called simplicity. Um, if anyone wants to borrow it, there's a book that I read once called The Freedom of Simplicity that's sitting on my shelf, which I'd be happy to loan you. And it's a pretty simple idea, um, but profound. Less is more. So one tangible example in the book is the challenge to, to own less and borrow things more as a way of decoup, like unattaching yourself from things. Like for instance, use the library. So again, I'm not suggesting that the practice of simplicity will result in a just world somehow, but it is the kind of religious practice, the kind of religious activity that will intentionally help us unlearn our attachment to stuff. For instance, imagine what it would look like if any time any church anywhere talked about prayer or prayed together or had prayer as a part of their Sunday service, they talked about simplicity, about sharing things. So perhaps if you feel like the things that you do to connect to God, the activities you've tried to stay connected to God, your religious practices, are leaving you isolated from others who have needs or becoming more about the performance of those things themselves, perhaps take a break from those practices and replace them with some different practices like simplicity or generosity. So to close this part out, the two strong winds of fresh perspective again that I took from Amos, one, luxury is a sign that you are at the top of an oppressive system. And two, you can't hide behind empty religious activity to look like a good person. So I wanna go on a slight tangent here. Remember that this was not written about American evangelicalism in 2020. Does it seem strangely familiar that a group of people would be both at the top of an oppressive economic system and also at the forefront of religious activities, doing a bunch of religious looking stuff? Hmm. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We will come back to this in one minute. But first, I do wanna finish this part with a couple of practical suggestions on how we might continue to unlearn these two things. This is not suggesting that I am great or do all of the suggestions that I'm about to suggest to you. I have just as many takeaways as anyone else. Um, perhaps these things are best, are, are best thought of just like the best ideas I could come up with today. I framed them as two sets of things to stop and start. First, let's stop spending money to gain or show status, image, prestige, brand, whatever. Let's instead start spending money to match our values, to pay fair costs for fairly produced things. For some of us, that means to buy from Black-owned businesses. Let's start spending our money just to be generous, just to give generously. Let's start spending our money to celebrate life, to enjoy what God has created, to love God's people. Secondly, let's stop doing religious activities that come from guilt, from concern about what God or others will think from a sense of duty, from a place of should, from attempt to be seen as a certain kind of person. Stop, 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 stop. Let's start doing or do more of those kinds of religious activities that actually help us experience God, awaken to God's love, or more particularly to Amos's words today, to better love 
and deepen our connection to other people. Now, as I promised, I want to close this out with another zooming way back out. That was what Amos said, what it means, what the implications are, some practical suggestions of Amos's words for our lives. But what are the implications of the fact that God has words like this and has had them at a time like that for us in the time that we live in right now? We live in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. We live at a time when there is greater attention on police brutality, as there should be, in a time when there's greater attention about what racism looks like for us in our world today. Many of us, I think, are wrestling with the racism expressed in Christianity, in churches, whether, that, whether we feel like that's our churches or those other churches. What does it look like to find God without the trappings of white Christianity, to unlearn the whiteness of Christianity? Is it worth the effort? Is it, worth, is it possible to hold on to God and to let go of the racialized elements, the ways that whiteness has been made to be supreme in the church? Is it possible to wash off this whitewashing? And if you do, what's left? Well, the words of Amos tells me that God does speak to a moment like this, and that God, in fact, has spoken to this moment for generations, centuries, For generations, God has always sided with those who are experiencing poverty, with those who are the oppressed or the marginalized. For generations, God has decried the empty religious expression of the oppressor. If you wash the whitewash off of Western Christianity, off of American evangelicalism, what will be left? Everything, everything that has always been in the center Everything that God has always been about, that is real about Jesus, is still there. We may be just arriving. We may be just waking up. We may be just trying to wash this whitewash off. But God has always been here at the center, on the side of the oppressed. If a no-name shepherd from a small town that no one has ever heard of, can hold the words and power of God for his generation, even reaching to our generation, then who knows which of us might wake up tomorrow with the words and power of the living God for our generation. And oh, do we need the words and power of the living God for our generation. Where will we find the power, the strength, the inspiration, the fortitude to unlearn, to work against oppression for the length of our lives, for the long journey, for our generation? We will find it in the living God who has worked against oppression for all the length of the lives of all the living in all generations. May the words and the power of the living God bring a bracing spring breeze and a jolt of energy to empower us to join God's great and long work 
May justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. summer and a little bit of hope sprouting in the world it just seems like the right season and time to sing this song about all creatures lifting their voices up to God so I hope that you will join me if you have a hymn book you can get it out <laughs> um, otherwise join me in singing all creatures of our God
So I'd like to take some time to offer up prayer for our Mosaic family. Um, as I mentioned earlier, as we prayed last week, we really had a sense of um, some people experiencing grief, um, confusion, you know, all of the changes that come with a major social upheaval change as we have just experienced. And so um, we just wanted to pray that uh, we would hold each other with grace and compassion and really seek the presence of God. Um, and I uh, would like to just use the outline of the daily examine. Um, so we'll take a moment to be aware of God's promise, God's presence. We'll review this day with gratitude. Um, take a moment to um, be pay attention to our, our emotions, to be mindful of that. Um, choose one feature of our day and pray for it, and then look towards tomorrow. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for the promise that Jesus gave us, that you would always be with us, that you are teaching us every day the truth of who Jesus is and the love that the Father has for us. Um, I just thank you that your presence is with us, Lord, no matter where we are, whether we're together, whether we're apart, you are with us. And so I just invite your presence now into each of our lives as we are listening to this as we're coming together to pray. Lord, would you be powerful in your presence, Lord? Father, we thank you that you have brought us through this pandemic, God. We don't know that it's over yet, but you have brought us through, Lord. Um, and we thank you for that. We thank you for our church, that our church has continued to, to thrive uh, despite all the challenges, Lord. Father, we do pray that um, there's just so many emotions. For so many, there's deep, deep grief. Um, there is a sense of uncertainty. Um, there may be a feeling of tremendous relief. There may be um, anxiety about re-engaging um, with our society at large and what that's going to look like. Just thank you, Lord, that we can bring all of those emotions to you. And I just pray now that we would take a few moments. And Lord, just as we take a deep breath in, we just lay all of that at your feet and be still in your presence and ask you to come by the power of your Holy Spirit and minister with grace and compassion to each one of us, Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. And Father, we look forward to the day when we are together. We pray that that will be a time of great joy, um, that you will give um, Pastor Angel and our church leadership wisdom as we move towards that time of being fully together um, and worshiping in our in our sanctuary, God. And Father, just thank you that this is also a time of transformation. And so I pray that you would give Angel and our church council wisdom as they lead that. Father, that you would provide all of the needs um, for our church to thrive and to be your hands and feet. That our mosaic would, would be a, a living and breathing example of your love uh, for our community. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.